0: Really, after taking note of our own first party data progression, the main thing that we've done is to have the thought of we want to widen our opportunity. We want to make sure that our inventory is available to buyers how they want to buy it. We don't want to put all our sort of eggs in one basket and go for one approach post third party cookie blocking and then go, oh, well, that didn't work. Yeah. Put The whole revenue at risk.
1: Hello and welcome to Media Voices, the media-focused podcast that gives you all the news and the views from this week in media. Mr Chris Sutcliffe isn't here this week, that's why I'm doing this little bit. But the good news, we're joined by Adam Tinworth. Hello. For those of you that don't know, Adam is Chris's old lecturer, he's my long-term sparring partner on social media, Um, he's been commenting on journalism forever since 2003, it says in my notes, but I reckon it's longer, and of course he writes the ever-popular one-man and his blog. He's a consultant, trainer and a visiting lecturer at City University in London. Welcome, Adam. Hello, it's uh, great to be here, it's great to be a stunt Chris. <laughs> uh, especially at, uh, a well, I, I at a stupid o'clock on a Sunday morning.
2: Well, yeah, now I know you do at a stupid o'clock on a Sunday morning. I I'm, I'm very impressed. I'm, it's going to completely transform the way I listen to the podcast in future.
3: And that extract you've just heard is from Joe Holdaway, who is Chief Data and Marketing Officer at Independent Digital News and Media, which is formerly ESI Media, their home of the Independent and the Evening Standard. So we discussed what sort of data is important to publishers, especially when it comes to subscription strategies, uh, why it's important to have a diverse team working with data, and how she's preparing the business for the sunsetting of third-party cookies. I will just say that this was recorded last week before Google decided that they were gonna delay the whole thing. So all dates have now been moved forward two years. Thank you, Google.
1: Uh, before we get on to that lovely interview, we're gonna do our news roundup, and there's only one thing that we can talk about this week. No, it's not Matt Hancock's fumblings. We're gonna talk about Reuters Digital News Report 2021. It's their annual survey, 92,000 respondents, 46 markets, all the stuff you need to know about what's going on in digital news. I have to say, I haven't read it. Uh, well, I spent the weekend moving stuff out of a flat, a tenement flat in Glasgow, so uh, I'm relying on my two excellent panel members. To tell me what the
2: hell is going on.
3: <laughs> well, Adam, I know you actually w- watched the launch event, didn't you? Like, how, how did you find it?
2: Well, one of the launch events, because they had the whole set of them around the world. And it was, I have to say, part of me is last year, it was like, oh great, I can just sit at my desk and watch the <laughs> launch event rather than getting on an early stupid o'clock train up to Victoria to join the event. This year, I really missed getting on the train. i really desperate to actually go and see people again. However, um, good things. Uh, as Marcella Kunakova pointed out on Twitter, it was really refreshing that they had the exact opposite of a mannel. Uh, they had uh, four oh, senior that, news yeah. executives from around Europe.
3: Is that
2: a flannel? Whoa, we need to be careful <laughs> where we're going with that. It was very clear that across the board, those four all representing you know, major news brands like the FT, like the uh, BBC, were very happy with the way things have gone with covid ironically, I suppose, but they are of the cohort that have done very well out of COVID. You know, there's this sort of aggregation of both money and attention towards the big news brands, the big trusted e-commerce news brands, and, you know, they represent those. They are sort of the core constituency of the digital news reports, so they've done well. As we know, many other sectors of news have not done nearly as well and have struggled, so slightly unbalanced in that sense. However, one really interesting thing I thought was with uh, the FT talking about the fact their weekend print sales are up. Yeah. And, you know, here's me after 20 years of banging on about digital journalism celebrating the fact print sales are up. Uh. But, yeah, it makes sense to me anyway that, you know, after sort of the relentless screen-based lives we've all been living for the last year and a bit, then you might actually want to retreat from those screens at the weekend to grab a, grab a magazine, grab the FT weekend. I mean, I've Personally, I've been buying more physical magazines, subscribing to more physical magazines just to escape screens a weekend.
1: I, I think, you know, we've talked about that so much that the, the the pandemic accelerated so many trends that were already yeah. there. And that this is one of those. I suppose yeah. the question
3: as ever then is, will those habits stick? Or as soon as we're allowed back to sort of big family gatherings or gatherings with friends, will that actually, will that kind of get pushed out?
2: I, mean, I think that's the big question across the board about a lot of the changes that the COVID has wrought. I mean, one thing is that we've had we've been in this situation well over a year. So that's, you know, more than long enough for some habits to become quite deeply ingrained, which is useful. <laughs> but on the other hand, suddenly it's going to be a challenge to maintain and grow those sort of boost in subs that a lot of places have seen.
3: So, I mean, there are a couple of headline findings that um, I sort of picked out that are particularly interesting before we go into what we personally found interesting. Um, So I think trust is up almost everywhere, which is great. Um, I bet Chris is really regretting he can't be here this week to discuss this one. (laughs) Um, But 44% of people now say they trust news most of the time. Um, Unsurprisingly, the lowest levels are in the US, uh, given the year they've just had. So I mean, that's that's a that's a good thing. I think in the UK we're still at, we're still less than we were pre Brexit, but Yeah, quite you
2: know. significantly less than we were pre Brexit.
3: Um another little headline figure, seventeen percent now pay for some kind of online news. That's up two points since last year overall.
1: You just know I'm tra- sat <laughs> here rolling my eyes, <laughs> don't you? You absolutely know that.
3: And yeah, that's uh, that's as high in some places like Norway as almost fifty percent. But then, you know, places like the UK not so high. But <laughs> again, please keep a lid on it. <laughs> And the other really interesting point is that lockdowns have actually accelerated the trend in how people access news. So there's been quite a big surge in people accessing via smartphones. All right, so Peter, do you want to kick us off with what you found interesting in the report you haven't read?
1: (coughs) (laughs) Yes, in the report that I haven't read. But I've, you know, I've not, I've read, I read Adam's excellent blog on it, and I read um, Mr. Sutcliffe's excellent piece in the drama about it. I mean, I think, I go back to that acceleration of trends thing, I, I, there's no surprises there in that sense, that it's all about forcing digitisation, print has had some real pressures, and I think it really does emphasise that print is not a great place to find fast breaking news um especially through the, the pandemic you, people will go to their phones um, rather than buy a newspaper to find out what the next, the latest lockdown status is um uh, so that you know we've talked about that adam and i've been talking about that for years um but it's just re- re-emphasized or reinforced them <laughs> I, I won't get into the pain for news thing in the uk yet I think it's so skewed here because of the BBC. But one of the things I thought was interesting was in the States, this local and national bundles that they're developing where people are taking a national news subscription and a local news subscription. I think that is really interesting. Um, only 3% of people in the UK are paying for news at the local level.
3: There's not that many local news products in the UK though, that, in terms of paying.
2: That's the problem. There's not a lot of opportunities to pay, is there? Yeah. There's lots of, you know, there's still lots of sites, but I mean, where I live, there's only one title dedicated to my town. Mm. And honestly, it's not really dedicated to my town.
1: Well, we talked last week, I think, um, about was GPI moving, moving more people back on the ground in local local papers, that might change that. I th- hopefully it'll change that. But that's an interesting one for me, I think. The other one, just staying with the sort of geographic aspect to this, the regional differences in attitudes to news are insane in the UK. You know, in the, I mean, you can extrapolate it out to trust, but it's, are you happy with the way your region is covered? um and in in london or in the southeast it's like 30 percent i think it goes as far as um 40 percent almost in the southwest but in in the northeast it's minus 12 percent that is a hell of a difference so i think that's an interesting one i mean the other thing the one one last thing i'd say is this, i think this is the first time i've seen influencers properly called out in this report yeah it's been a problem Uh, you know 5g conspiracy or or anti-vax conspiracy type stuff and i think that's the first time i've seen that actually addressed which is
2: it's good that it's being talked about but it's bad that it's a problem yeah it's i mean they've clearly been an issue for a long time these sort of individual media nodes to use that horrible phrase (laughs) that that create all this attention around them um and they are a challenge and because of the sort of the general absence of a lot of news sites on some of the more emergent social media platforms is clearly going to be a big challenge and I don't think we're particularly well equipped to start thinking about how to deal with this yet so we're going to see the re- same repeat as we, we of the problems we've had with you know fake sites and fake pages create, being created on Facebook you know a whole different language of media that we're not ready to compete with or, or interact with yet.
3: So Adam, what were your highlights?
2: my highlights oh i'm really interested in the in the, the trust issue and have been for a little while um yes there is a recovery of, of trust but yes certainly in the uk it's still not anywhere near pre-brexit levels and that's that's worrying i mean we're, we're seeing clear polarization and you know people on the left think they're not well represented people on the right think they're not well represented in the uk nearly equally fascinatingly which probably means the the me just doing a reasonable job, but people are <laughs> able to find them, themselves little cohorts of people online who say who think yeah. they are being, um, yeah, you know, unfairly represented, and therefore they sort of tell this story to themselves. So that that's a big challenge. Um, but to me, I'm really interested in why trust is declining, and I think we've started touching on some of it about on the fact that we, the local spread is so badly addressed you know so many people in the regions are never going to meet a journalist because you know all the big national journalists are in London and you know the regional journalists are in such trouble and I am fascinated there's some parts of the world they are very clearly making local news work you know if you read all the journalism press around local news it's been doom and gloom for about 15 to 20 years now but then you look at what's going on particularly in the nordics in norway and sweden and places like that you know they are doing really well relatively speaking you know some of them have sort of arrested decline in print they're seeing digital subscriptions grow um, yeah what was it norway had over 40% of people paying for news and a fairly significant chunk of those are paying for two at least two sets of news for national news and local news
3: well, they had that that it was it was fifty seven percent of people that, that paid for news actually paid for local news or, or like a regional news, which I was really surprised but at. But
2: local, regional, and city papers, yeah, yeah, fascinating. Now, people are starting to make the argument already. Oh, there are particular local circumstances that explain that, and you could never replicate that in the UK. And yeah, there's the big BBC elephant in the room that obviously changes yeah. the whole dynamics of content in the UK. But one of the really interesting graphs I found is one that looks at the topics that people address um, and people access rather in different markets around local news. And you, you see a sort of, UK is slightly an outlier. They access far less in terms of sort of local things to do, local shops and restaurants. And you know, I still think there's something deeper we can take away from this about what local sites should be doing about you know being more local I've, I've always been slightly skeptical of the move for some of the local publishers to centralize in sort of county hubs yeah. because you know frankly you know I live in Sussex. what happens in most of Sussex I don't care about as I suggested earlier I care about what's happening in the couple of towns immediately around me. you know give me that sort of local stuff. give me stuff about local entertainment. give me stuff about local shops and restaurants. I do genuinely care about that. And why i'm interested in this right at this moment in time is the problem with these reports great though they are is they capture a little moment in time so last year's report captured just before the pandemic hit this report has captured the height of the pandemic if you like next year's is going to be really interesting to see you know what has been maintained from this year but those changes peter was talking about earlier the fact that it's accelerated it changes. It doesn't just apply to media, clearly, it applies to all sorts of things. It applies to retail. It's you know very clearly going to apply to working. You know, we've seen Reach basically say everyone everyone's not coming back to the office, you're going to be working independently. That has an interesting possibility around attachment to place. And the report actually has a section on the relationship between consumption of local media and attachment to place. Now, clearly, we've all been much more attached to where we live over the last year than we are traditionally. And given the way many companies are talking about return to the office, if there's an office to return to, we're likely to remain more attached to our living places than perhaps we have in the past. And that, to me, feels like an inflection point, an opportunity that we might have over the next year or so, a chance for you know, smart start-up news brands, independent news brands, or some of the big ones to rebrand themselves, to rethink how they do local journalism. I mean, reaches change, in theory, could be an opportunity for them to have their journalists based in coffee shops and restaurants in the town they're actually reporting on, not in an office, not at home, physically in front of people, contactable, known in their communities again. Okay, it's an idealist view, but there's potential there. And if we're really serious about rebuilding trust, I sort of feel that you know that big deficit we're seeing is not going to be addressed until people start encountering journalists again. And they're only going to do that if we start rebuilding local journalism.
3: Well it's like that, that Substack grant went to that Liverpool um newsletter journalist, didn't it? So It
2: did, yes, which I thought was really I mean I was kind of surprised because I, I automatically assume most of it would be US based. Yeah, but no, yeah. that's that's really interesting and I'd be really interested to see where that goes.
1: Okay, Esther, so what you got
3: all right
2: come
1: on
3: <laughs> so uh, and i will just say all the charts we've mentioned we will put in the um in the post for this episode on voices.media but actually the, the thing i found particularly interesting was the differences in how people access news especially the young people or as the, as the report classifies them, the under 35s which means i'm still young yay
2: congratulations <laughs>
3: The, um, the report said that one in four people go directly to a news site or app, which I think that was actually slightly higher than I expected. That's people literally going to um, you know, ft.com or opening something directly. But that actually drops to less than 18% in under 35s. Um, obviously a lot of them finding things through social media. Um, but the point I found particularly interesting and really quite depressing from this chart is that email is actually a really low point of access. Um, it's five percent across all ages, and it's just three percent for under thirty fives. And I think there's been we spent so much time this year going on about you know the substack bubble, um, you know the fact that email is such like a hot vehicle for publishers to deliver news, and actually basically nobody uses it. No, no real normal people use it. Well, five percent of people, which isn't a lot. Uh,
2: so I, I have strong opinions on this. So, um... <laughs> I I think that's partially our fault. Um, I I think email has been badly neglected as a way of reaching our readers for a long time. And if you look at still a lot of news organizations, email newsletters are basically marketing vomit. You know, the inbox is another place where you have to fight for attention. So there's that aspect to it. I think email is really important. And I think we'd be stupid to neglect it based on these figures simply because... For all the volume of traffic the social search are still sending us, the problem is we never, ever, ever own those relationships. And we can all think of dozens of examples of businesses that have been really hurt by a Facebook algorithm change or a Google algorithm change. So I think this figure is not necessarily a indictment of email as a way of talking to our readers. Although we need to bear in mind that there's lots of evidence that younger people use email way less than us old folks. But I think this is, a, to some degree, an indictment of our failure to really build out email as a serious relationship channel with our readers. It's got better over the last couple of years, you know, but I, th- I think we're still at the early point of figuring out how important email is going to be. And I, to me, this figure is... An indication of how much work has yet to be done rather than necessarily a fundamental flaw with the idea that you know getting people news via email is is, is a doomed proposition
3: oh and I, I absolutely wouldn't say that it is um and i think especially so from my time working at publishers that the you know the email newsletter can provide anything from sort of 15 to about 40 percent of that day's traffic mm.
1: um and
3: i think it's i think it's it, it, it's a really good way to reach that really core group of loyal people
2: yeah i think that's the that's the key it's the core group
3: but in the wider context of access that actually most people are just like, yeah, we don't really use it. Um, and that to me was a bit of a, of a grief, you know, kind of looking at and thinking. And I, I was even discussing this with my friends and she said, oh, yeah, no, you know, I've got an email account. I've signed up to loads of stuff, but there's no way I can possibly read it. So most of it just goes into this inbox that she never looks at. It's you know, <laughs> one of those sort of like 50,000 unread emails. And, and I'm there sort of with inbox zero, just sweating a little bit. <laughs>
2: I, I am guilty of having a folder in my email called to read that is full of newsletters. <laughs> many of which are not read, to be fair. It's the worst named folder in my email. I also think it's important to
1: to remember that this is specific to news. You know, a lot of newsletters are very niche and news isn't necessarily niche. So it depends. Depends how they've cut this.
3: I can't go an episode without mentioning the platforms, um, and uh, I'll I'll pop the chart in the notes, but um, there's a really interesting chart about how people are now accessing news through platforms. Uh, Facebook has actually really dropped off since 2016, um, although it is still the most popular platform, and unsurprisingly, WhatsApp, TikTok and Telegram have all seen rises, Um, although Twitter is still seen as the main place where news breaks.
2: But it's relatively low in use among the public, which is the trade-off.
3: Um, but the report's co-authors did point out, I know we touched on earlier, that um, it's because of these influences and things on these platforms, it's actually really important that news organisations do prioritise getting onto the platforms, um, because uh, otherwise people like misinformation will spread and, and people haven't got any reliable sources to follow, so they'll just follow the loonies, basically.
2: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a sort of a repeat of what we saw happen on YouTube, people not taking it particularly seriously. I mean, one of the most terrifying figures I saw in the report was there only 6% of people worry about YouTube as a serious source of disinformation. Have you looked at YouTube lately? It is brimming over with disinformation. I think there's been almost a uh, disproportionate focus on Facebook as a source of misinformation. Yes, it's a big problem, but YouTube is probably a bigger problem. We just don't talk about it.
3: And after that, a brief look at the news in brief. So uh, Google has delayed its phasing out of third party cookies to late 2023, which is nearly two years later than its original timeframe. So the tech giant has said that the delay will basically give more time for publishers, advertisers, and everybody else to get comfortable with replacement technologies, which as of yet do not exist. Um, But there is evidence that actually regulatory pressure is having an effect. um, Because part of the reason they've moved the goal is because of um, the United Kingdom's Competition and Markets Authority. So yeah, regulatory pressure.
2: Yeah, I wonder if some of this is because there's been such a big pushback on the federated learning of cohorts thing they're doing yeah
1: yeah uh buzzfeed has announced plans finally to go public through a SPAC. uh basically it means that they get involved with this big corporation that's got loads of money and then buy stuff and they're looking for complex networks which is currently with verizon um these SPAC deals are bizarre it basically is a blank check um, and and the, the point is that this blank check is worth $1.5 billion, which Buzzfeed is supposed to be gonna make a billion dollars in revenue next in, over the next few years.
2: The Economist has seen record subscriber growth of 9%, taking the total to 1.12 million. However, overall revenues were down 3% as the subscriber growth only partially offset a decline in client marketing solutions and event revenues couple of things about this the economists have clearly been very canny in the way they've approached their subscriber growth for years there's some really interesting thinking about completion and the role of the economist in people's lives I'm not surprised to see that a publication that's sort of devoted to explaining and contextualizing the news particularly from an economic perspective has done well during a period of dramatic change <laughs> and honestly you know event revenues are going to come back
3: and the number of people accessing news in print in Australia has halved since 2016. Um, so 80% of Australians say they haven't read a newspaper or a news magazine in the past week. And um, according to the Reuters report, only 13% of Australians actually pay for online news, which is quite well below the global average of 17%. I mean, that is, a, that is a big drop.
2: Breach is looking to hire an online safety editor. The appointee would liaise with social media platforms on individual cases of abuse, and push for action to improve the problem more generally, according to Press Gazette. The publisher decided to introduce the role after an internal survey of employees showing their growing number were affected by online abuse. I mean, this is obviously the right move. This is obviously a good move. Uh, My problem with this is the fact we've reached this situation at all. Yeah. Uh, it's a profound failure of, not just local news, but across the whole industry, to take community management and interaction with readers through either our own platforms, which we all tried 10, 15 years, then abandoned it all for Facebook, or through the social networks. Um, This person is gonna have a tough job. Uh, There's a lot of work to do in that space, and there's a lot of deep learning you need. Uh, honestly, I think this is one of those areas where, as an industry, we're terrible at looking outside because there's so much deep knowledge, experience, and wisdom, frankly, uh, in other areas, including gaming. I mean, gaming has been doing community management on a massive scale in often highly toxic environments for over a decade. You know, community managers there have, you know, strategies and techniques. That are well tested and well applied, and we because journalism tends to look inwards rather than outwards at all these other industries that have overlapping problems with us. We're not really learning in the way we should. But yeah, this is good. This is the first step. <laughs> more people need to take the intersection between their journalists and their readers, and the, the where that can go wrong more seriously. Yeah. And your know, audience teams need to be about more than just audience growth. They also need to be about audience relationship, and that includes this sort of stuff and protecting our journalists.
3: This week I spoke with Jo Holdaway, Chief Data and Marketing Officer at Independent Digital News and Media. So she discussed how the data team works at the publisher and the evolution of their subscription strategy during the pandemic, but I started by asking her what got her interested in data and analytics in the publishing space.
0: Well, I've got a commercial background, so I did a science degree and have always been comfortable with data, but my first job um, was in ad sales and I joined the independent selling print space after a spell at um, what was then IPC magazines for New Scientist and Deco Airport. And so I rose through the ranks really in commercial and moved into digital, I think in 2003 as a general manager and having just done an MBA, because at that point um, commercial was slightly one-dimensional. And I always had a hunger to look at the business as a whole and gain my business experience. And the MBA just made that sort of hunger even even more acute. Um, so after the birth of my second child, my, my boss, who's the CEO, Zach Leonard, gave me the opportunity to build a data team and a strategy from scratch. And because I'm essentially very nosy and I like to be involved <laughs> in everything, I jumped at that chance because... Data at that time, and obviously now especially, is at the heart of business and what that gave me was an overview what I thought it would give me is an overview and a seat at the table for actually forming or helping to shape digital publishing strategy, which it did. So I, I moved into data quite by chance, but we didn't have a data team at the time and we needed that capability and my boss gave me that opportunity, but the commercial experience has really stood me in good stead because... Even though I haven't got a data science background, the most important thing in the enormity of the pools of data that's is available is knowing what your business objectives are and how to achieve them and how to use the data available at your fingertips to help the business achieve those KPIs. So sometimes I think it's a it's a bonus not having a background steeped in, in data analytics and data science, because I've got those experts in the team to do that for me. But you do need to be comfortable with data. So it was a sort of an accident, but a very happy accident.
3: Do you find you end up kind of being a bridge between the probably the more commercial side of the business and then the editorial side? Like, do, they, do they come into conflict a bit?
0: I think we're quite unique in our setup. So we've always had editors that have been very commercially astute. So um, there's not really been that church and state operations in the independent particularly. So we've always, always had commercially astute editors and that just makes the whole thing much easier. So obviously each side respects the other enormously. But what helps is sort of data facilitating that relationship a little bit more. Um, So we've always been quite lucky with that, I think. And it's quite uncommon to have that close relationship, I think, in, in publishing.
3: Yeah. Um, talking about structure actually, um, it used to be ESI media, it's now independent digital news and media. And I think you were saying the um the data team is almost like a, it's almost got like a services approach to the different publications that the independent has. So so can you talk us a bit about how that's structured and, and why why there are benefits to having it that way?
0: Yes, sure. So as I said before, we started from scratch, I just had a, a senior analyst with me who's still with the team. And he's he's absolutely fantastic. There was just the two of us. And now we're a team of 30. Um, and we're divided basically into data analytics and subscription marketing. Um, and both of those sort of wider big teams service the independent and the Evening Standard. We're still owned by the same owners. We're just separating slightly in terms of editorial and commercial and getting, you know, the standard getting its own identity and the independent away from ESI media. So within the analytics team, we've got newsroom specialists. So they are either dedicated to the independent or the Evening Standard. We've got a commercial analytics team who works on advertising analytics and modeling and stitching together revenues from partners and yield management etc and that's across both brands and then we have analysts working with a subscription team so performance trading predictive modeling um, plus anything off platform and senior management requirements so we sort of basically devolve those analytical teams into three and then we also have the subscription marketing team so that covers marketing um, CRM customer success. And we also have a compliance expert who looks at privacy and GDPR because that falls under um, my remit mainly because I've got a data in my title (laughs) and, um, much to my joy at the time, but the centralized model works really well because it's really important for analysts to have support and to have like-minded people that they know that they can talk to sort of cross fertilization of ideas. And because it enables us to have an overview of how the whole business works from, you know, data's at the heart of everything, whether it's finance or editorial or commercial or product. It just gives us a, a sort of a unique perspective over what our output could be and how it could affect the business. So I find that central model really handy. And it also is really good from a career development perspective for the analysts because they've got common paths for development. We use data camp and each one has an individual path, but we know that everybody's acquiring the necessary skills they need to progress. Um, so I find it a really good plus and it avoids, you know, that, um, accumulation of silos across the business, which, which might involve really fantastic specialist knowledge, but that, that knowledge doesn't then disseminate to the rest of the business and having a centralised approach has really helped with that.
3: Um, and subscriptions are, well, I mean, especially the last year or two, they've grown to be a really important part of publishers revenue streams. So what does that look like
0: at the independent? So it's quite early days for us. I would say, so we, we, we launched our first digital edition when the newspaper became digital only, and that was back in 2016. And we transferred our newsprint subscriber base to this product, which is still around now, but we have never been a subscription heavy, um, brand. Hmm. So in 2018, we launched a more populist subscription product, which is called independent premium. And what we were doing then is really experimenting in the subspace and what we've found and what hopefully I've driven is a, is a change of how we approach this. So it's now a serious reader revenue stream. It's contributing nicely to diversification of our commercial strategy, but we're still in early days. So last year, we really concentrated on setting up a solid foundation for subscription success in the future. Um, so we had a transformational change in our culture and our attitude to subscriptions, because before it was very much a marketing focus and responsibility. And it's like actually no accountability for this revenue stream crosses multi-disciplines so any team who contributes to this revenue stream whether it's editorial or product or data or finance crm etc all need to have a stake in it so we've now got multidisciplinary work sort of task forces across the business and it also meant building a really strong team with experience um, and experience in subscriptions marketing particularly crm and trading performance and that has made a real difference
3: was that something that was driven by the pandemic, or was that all in place, kind of set to go before, before last year?
0: It was during, actually. So we benefited, I mean, there was a surge in subscriptions during the pandemic. So we've had the cushion of healthy acquisitions while we were getting our strategy together. But one thing that really pushed us was we earned a place on the Google News Initiatives subscriptions lab program. It's a bit of a mouthful. And that (laughs) ran for six months during 2021. And we were the only UK publisher to get a place on that. And it was recognizing we were in early stages. And it gave us that thinking time um, to really develop our strategy. So we developed our strategy during the pandemic. And we were aided admirably, I must say, by FT Strategies, who were um, working on this subs lab program with Google. Mm. And it just gave us that space. To think about okay this is our stage of development let us identify areas where we're not as strong areas where we're sort of ahead of the game what obstacles can we avoid that other publishers have have sort of come up against and although we've got a couple of major projects still to push through in the next few weeks we're changing our landing pages we're changing the way we use our subscriptions platform and we're improving all our flows ultimately it all comes back to the quality of the editorial and the value exchange with readers so we're hoping at the end of this fiscal and our fiscal ends at the end of September, we'll be in a position to be able to offer the business, okay, here are your choices, depending on the level of content and the quality and mix of content you want to put behind the paywall, This is what we think we can give you as a return because we balance our subs revenues with advertising that still accounts for 65% of our revenues. Yeah. So we can balance that quite nicely because we look at segmentation. So we only offer subscriptions to individuals we think are on the cusp of subscribing. And because we segment our audience so heavily, it doesn't affect the advertising revenue model, particularly the ads, the sort of articles that we know do really well behind the paywall are not those that are necessarily driving the scale for ad monetization. So it's been a real learning curve over the 2021. And we now think we're in a position to really sort of take control of the subscription space.
3: Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned a few things there, but what, what sort of data and, and I suppose metrics is it important to look at when it comes to subscription strategies?
0: engagement metrics are really important um and i was just listening to a talk earlier this morning from lou gaultier from um, ft strategies and she she said and it's really obvious um, if you think about it is no reader's going to part with their money and and take a subscription out with you unless they are engaged with your brand unless they've returned to your brand more than once it's very difficult to get someone at first pass and go hey you know why don't you put a subscription get a subscription for 8.99 a month so engagement is really important So if they are interested in the brand and the editorial, they return to the site regularly, then it's much more easy to then convert them to a registered user and then to a subscriber. And we've got an overarching, what we call an A to K strategy, which is anonymous to known strategy. And it's all about moving readers from an anonymous state to a known state. And the reader registrations is a major driver of this. So the engagement metrics are super important. And we've developed a couple of models along the way one is uh, we call the APV scoring model, and that helps us identify likely subscribers using their browsing habits or their frequency and mix of content read. And we use this model to individually score people and then message them with the right um, communication at the right time to push them over the edge to converting to a subscriber. So that's, a, that's born out of engagement metrics. And another one is um, our quality read score, and that helps the editorial team to decide what content to publish. So from a subscriptions perspective or a registrations perspective, we want content that's highly engaging. It can be niche. It doesn't have to be scaled up, but it has to be engaging. And then the more content we produce of that nature and the less effort we put in content, which actually when you map it out, could have low scale and low engagement. It gives efficiency to the editorial team and and it sort of hones their focus on what the output could be to maximise engagement across, um, across the whole field. So engagement metrics, even though there's a lot of talk around those, it's the right kind of talk, if you see what I mean.
3: Yeah, and I suppose that's important as well when it comes to renewals, because that'll that'll be the next thing everybody's worried about.
0: Well, it's much better to retain your subscribers and acquire new ones, and it's much cheaper. (laughs) So, you know, while we've been having a look at our strategy and, you know, madly getting as many registered users as we can, like every other premium publisher... Um, The retention metrics that we've concentrated on, particularly from a CRM perspective, which is where we've really gained from experienced people coming into the team, means that our churn rates have been really low. So whilst we've had acquisition spikes during the the pandemic, we've also experienced acquisition lows and it's the retention metrics and the, the, the efforts on retention that has sort of saved the day from a revenue perspective.
3: And I I can't talk about data without mentioning, obviously, the the phasing out of third-party cookies next year. It's the big topic in publisher data. What are you working on to prepare the company for for the changes that are coming up?
0: So we've got a program of work in play. Um, The first thing that we made sure we did was rebuild all our segments, our audience segments, taking out the third-party data and replacing it with just first-party data. So they have shifted slightly in terms of um, the makeups, so there are a lot more behavioral and interest segments in there. But whilst um, asking people to register, we do pick up a few demographic data points, which we can use because agency briefs still come in asking for demographic data. So we've redone our segments. We're going to launch them to the agencies either in the next few weeks or in September. Um, and we, we've productized those now and we're going to launch those to the market when we think the time is right, but it will enable agencies to buy with us in a a much clearer way. And then we've accelerated our first party data programme. So we've now got a real emphasis on registrations. We've increased monthly registrations fivefold, which is amazing. Predominantly because we've now introduced registration gating. So we respectfully ask our readers to register to protect our journalism, but also to give them a more tailored experience. We've revamped all our newsletters. Our portfolio has expanded the quality of those are much better and the prompts are more targeted encouraging readers to sign up and we've got a new communities platform so we're partnering with viafora to build commenting but also the other features that they enable us to launch across the site so we're about a third of the way through that rollout but i think really after taking you know note of our own first party data progression the main thing that we've done is is to have the the thought of, we want to widen our opportunity. We want to make sure that our inventory is available to buyers how they want to buy it. We don't want to put all our sort of eggs in one basket and go for one approach post third party cookie blocking and then go, oh, well that didn't work. Yeah. Put the whole revenue at risk. It's reminding me of when GDPR launched and everyone was milling around panicking without making definitive decisions and it was all a bit of a mess. So we've engaged with a wider um, partner portfolio as possible. So we're working with Pubmatic, so we'll be looking at their um, identity hub tool and that will enable us to trade with a whole selection of ID vendors without necessarily having to contract with them individually. We're looking at um, data clean rooms, so we're working with Infosum and Experian Match and from a perspective of long-term partnerships and, and matching of data, we're in that space. Our DMP is permutive. It's a really successful partnership we've had with them for a number of years. They've got a similar product called Vaults now, um, which will enable agencies to build to buy those audiences across premium publishers. And then, of course, we're keeping an eye on Google. We're a member of Ozone, so we're sort of trying to spread our strategy quite wide so we don't miss any opportunity without going all in with every single identity partner because there are now tens of those.
3: And, and what about internally, like, do people in the company understand what's changing in terms of data and kind of almost their data literacy, I suppose?
0: They do. I mean, it's another cultural transformation. And I think, you know, similar to the GDPR example I cited a bit earlier, there's so much notice and time to prepare that I think, particularly in a fast-paced news organisation that's got global ambitions, so we're, we're very much a global news organisation now, because we are very fast paced and it's all about the revenues in the next week, the next month, the next quarter, the longer the notice period you give people, the more it gets pushed down the list in terms of <laughs> need, to, need to do it. So I've experienced a really good buy-in and support internally from the board down. So I regularly update the board. Great support and buy-in from our MD, our CEO and chairman. The next challenge was then to engage the senior managers. So we've got a, work, we've got a task force. Basically, with the help of our Head of Commercial Data and Insight, who's amazing. um, We've got ad tech specialists in that team who've been really indispensable in pushing through the development work that we need to have done in order to participate in all the trials that we want to do. And then the commercial team are now following behind them in terms of they completely understand it. They know the urgency of it. We've probably got around six months to go, which seems to be a trigger. So now it's like, yes, we want to help. We want to get the message out. Um, But it is a real cultural transformation, and it's quite tough, actually. It always takes at least twice the amount of time you think (laughs) to permeate the whole company. It requires a lot of nagging from me, so I'm probably the least person that they want to see having emailed them. (laughs) But it does require buy-in at all levels of the company. But it's great to get that buy-in from the top first because then it just gives you added weight for the nagging. Yeah, I I
3: suppose it's just the timing as well, because you've got, you know, finally settled into GDPR, they put this announcement out, and then the pandemic hit, and you just kind of feel like people have just been trying to process everything that's going on, you just want want sort of three or four years break almost.
0: I know, exactly, and to all credit to the commercial teams, it's been such a difficult year for revenue generation, so the last thing they want to really be doing is looking six months ahead when it's been such an immediate type of environment for the last 12, 18 months to go, okay, we're going to plan for the future. And I'm saying, but it's really important. And they go, Joe, day to day, we don't even know what's happening. You know, so it it does, it does take a lot of effort and goodwill. Yeah.
3: Do you have any thoughts on um, I know Google's looking at flocks. I don't know if that's how I pronounce them. Do Do you have any thoughts on how effective that's going to be? Or are you very much like focused on kind of first party data?
0: We are keeping a very close eye with Google. I mean, we've partnered very closely with them on a whole number of initiatives and they're a really good trusted partner of ours, but the flock hasn't really taken off yet that's a terrible pun um, <laughs> particularly so it's not spelt like that so we're keeping an eye on it a lot of our businesses traded through google so i am absolutely sure that come the time they will have had they will have developed a solution that works at the moment it's very uncertain so what i'm actually hoping is that more business moves to the more independent players away from the wall gardens and perhaps the the major players in the market just to even the the playing field up a little bit um, but we most certainly will continue to trade a lot of our inventory through Google. So I'm hoping that it takes off, but it's not looking um, promising just at the moment. So we're waiting for some new developments, I think.
3: Yeah, since everybody else has sort of said they're not going to use them. So it's like, well, great, but what's your alternative?
0: <laughs> no, exactly. You know, if 60% of your, your advertising revenue is traded through Google, then, you know, good luck if you think you're going to push it all <laughs> away. But um, it's definitely healthy, in my opinion, to look at alternatives.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, And just as a last question, um, diversity in media is incredibly important, and it's rightly grown in importance in companies over the last few years. So why is it important to have a diverse team when it comes to working with with data?
0: Having a diverse team in data is is the same as having a diverse team in whatever area you work in. So our data team is pretty um, diverse in terms of age, also gender, ethnicity, sort of culture, interests, etc. And that's... I'm really proud of that. And in particular, when I used to go to meetings and I was the only woman around the room and it was data and it was digital, um, it, I didn't really notice, but then it certainly dawned on me that this is quite lopsided. So what I'm seeing within our team is there are a lot of different cultures represented. There are a lot of different age groups represented. We have more female analysts than male, actually. But as you get further up the management ladder, that's when it's sort of slowly reverting back to sort of the old norm. And that's where I think we've got some work to do, which I'm, I'm really passionate to get to get right. Um, and I think as a woman in data and a senior manager within within that, it's a responsibility of mine to make sure that, you know, the, the diversity of the country is reflected in the workforce. And we're making really great strides, strides as a company to to remedy that and to really focus on it, which I'm really pleased with. And then the last thing we ask all our guests is, what's the last thing you read or
3: saw that really affected you?
0: Now that's a really interesting question and um, it's it's actually um, a poem that I read and it's nothing to do with media, it's nothing to do with work at all but um, it just really resonated with me for some reason and struck a chord and it's called High Flight. There's a young US serviceman who wrote it, John McGee, and it's all about his experiences during, I think just before or during World War II too as he was flying his aircraft above the clouds and the this sort of euphoric feeling he got when he got that freedom now whether that's because it's reflective of the pandemic and we can't do anything i don't know but it really resonated made made me feel by association quite free and it was like the wonder of exploration so it was that and it's an absolutely beautiful poem if anyone reads it and also my father was in the RAF and, um, and he died a few years ago. So it reminds me of my dad as well, which is very personal. But it's a beautiful poem, and I'm not a poetry reader, so it was a double surprise. Well, that's actually our first
3: poem, so. There you
0: go.
1: <laughs> so if you're impressed by the fact that we are up at 7.30 on a Sunday morning, or even earlier, doing this just so that you can hear what's going on in the Reuters news report, then get yourself over to kofi.com and give us some money. We like money, it keeps us going. Um, Seriously, if you go to voices.media, you can find our Ko-Fi button and you can sign up for a monthly subscription or just buy us a coffee.
3: And if you're (laughs) desperate for more Media Voices content, you can sign up to our daily newsletter if you are one of the 5% of people that likes getting newsletters. Uh, So that contains four of the most important media stories of the day, no more, no less. Um, And it also contains a link to our latest episode.
1: Well, thank you so much, Adam. Thanks for coming this morning, for guest My hosting pleasure. with us. You can come back anytime. Um, for those of you that don't know, Adam's blog is at onemanandhisblog.com.
2: Give it yes. a read, you'll learn loads. It is a very bad pun on one man and his dog. I set that name in 2003 when a bad blog pun name was compulsory and now I have to stand in places like Singapore or Kerala trying to explain one man and his dog to people which has made me regret that decision deeply over the years Uh, that's ours and until next week when we
1: hope Mr Sutcliffe has moved into his new flat Uh, till then, take care speak to you soon, Bye.
2: bye
1: cheerio